Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more, access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 230 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, Too Many Cooks, Managing Complex Accountabilities. In this modern era of enlightened inclusiveness, the pendulum has swung decisively from independently operating silos towards sharing and collaboration. This has seen the resurgence of role sharing at all levels and in organisations of all sizes. Collaboration is a critical ingredient to working successfully in the complex organisations we now live in. But what happens when accountabilities are split to the point where they become opaque, confused or misunderstood? From low-level part-time job sharing to co-CEOs of major global businesses, we witness the hazards of trying to share accountabilities. Humans just aren't particularly good at it for all sorts of reasons. Some of the higher-profile co-CEO arrangements have crumbled fairly publicly in the last couple of years, so I thought it was probably a good time to address the issue of role-sharing and the impact it has on performance. If you just want your people to be able to come to work and feel good about contributing in a team environment with their peers, hey, shared accountabilities are just the ticket. But if it's performance you're after, it's very unlikely that you'll find it in a structure that assumes accountabilities can be spread across multiple people. Without getting too far off topic, I'm going to start with an interesting postscript on an episode that we released last year. I'll then get into today's topic with a look at the various job sharing models and some of the problems that they can create. 
and I'll finish with my three-step process for structuring an accountable team. So let's get into it. Now, I want to start with a funny story. Almost exactly one year ago to the day, we released episode 182, which was titled, What is Strong Leadership? And I liked it so much that it received my honourable mention in the annual wrap that Em and I did of our favourite podcasts for 2022. Now, in that episode, I gave a couple of examples of CEOs who had demonstrated what strong leadership isn't. I just wanted to make the point that any form of bullying, intimidation, or command and control tactics aren't a mark of strong leadership at all. One of the examples I used was Jack Truong, former CEO of industrial business James Hardy. So imagine my surprise when Jack contacted me a few weeks ago. Check this out. Apparently, Jack's wife Maria is a long-distance runner, and she listens to a lot of podcasts. So she's out running one day in Chicago, minding her own business, listening to a no-bullshit leadership episode and she hears me mention her husband. What are the chances, right? So when I script these episodes, look, I try to research as thoroughly as I possibly can, but this is a really good reminder to not believe everything you read in the media. Now, I learned this lesson many times over the course of my corporate career. With the reducing resources that journalists have these days, basic mistakes are often made through no fault of their own. For example, I've seen journalists quote numbers that are completely inaccurate like citing a net profit figure as a revenue number. Anyhow, I ended up catching up with Jack and we had a lengthy chat. Now, I had been lulled into a false sense of security about the information I'd read in the media because the chairman of James Hardy had gone on the record with a quote about why Jack was ousted. Now, knowing myself how boards and market announcements work, this was quite unusual in a world of termination settlements and non-disparagement clauses. But of course... No matter how thinly you slice the prosciutto, there's always two sides to it. So I just want to have a shout out to Jack and straighten the record in a couple of aspects. The first aspect is, it's often the case that a CEO who is turning a company around won't be universally popular. The old guards certainly don't want their comfortable, secure power bases to be disrupted the way they are when the status quo is threatened. And quite often, there's a lot of noise and pushback to try to discredit the driver of that change. I've experienced this myself many times over, and no doubt Jack experienced this too at James Hardy. The second aspect is that Jack gave me some insight into the political machinations of the board and CEO relationship at the time. And look, without going into the gory details, I can say that I am totally convinced that his was a political assassination rather than a termination for the reasons offered in the public media. Finally, in episode 182, I made the point that superior performance is often driven by macroeconomic and industry factors, and that the rising tide lifts all ships. Well, Jack explained to me the strategic drivers for the massive increase in James Hardy's share price under his stewardship. It's clear that Jack's strategy made a huge difference in the market's perception of the business and also its performance. And as they began to post a track record of success with the new strategy, the market rewarded James Hardy handsomely. So whereas the market was definitely on an upswing, James Hardy massively outperformed the market. And once again, without getting into the nitty gritty, Jack's results in pretty much every area were nothing short of spectacular. Now at the end of this episode, I also mentioned the fact that I had a tailwind during my tenure as CEO of CS Energy. So just out of interest, this prompted me to go back and look at some of my comparators. So it turns out 
that while we grew earnings by a compound annual growth rate of 125%, and to be clear, this was the underlying EBITDA, our closest comparator company grew its EBITDA by a little under 20% compounding annually. So we must have done something right at CS Energy, even though we had the wind assistance. All right, let's now focus on why I believe that the old saying, too many cooks spoil the broth, is a firm principle we should apply in business. Let's start with a look at job sharing. Why was it invented? Job sharing is defined as regular part-time work where two people share the accountabilities of one position and simply split the hours. This became a pretty popular way to try to offer flexible working arrangements. For example, it gave a path to re-employment for new mothers who wanted to return to the workforce but could only do so on a part-time basis while still meeting the demands of their family duties. And for this reason, it was a really big step forward in the quest for gender equity. For two individuals sharing a single role, the accountabilities are the same, and they're simply divided by the allocation of time. For this reason, they're suited more to lower-level roles that don't require quite as much accountability. As the level and breadth of accountability increases, the effectiveness of job sharing declines. And this is because the two people would have to ultimately agree on any decisions. Either that, or the more dominant person would simply get their way. Add to this the fact that humans are pretty resourceful, and everyone would learn how to play off mum against dad pretty quickly. I need an answer on this issue, but M's a hard ass, so I'll wait until Thursday because Marty will be in the role on Thursday, and I've got a better chance of convincing him. So even though the accountability clearly lies with the role, it requires excellent communication between the people who share that role. Job sharing arrangements are also unwieldy and difficult to manage. They're likely to be more costly. So for example, things like training and development and performance management have to be replicated. And think about the practicalities of working out who's performing and who isn't. When an awesome result is achieved by the two people in a shared role, you'd have to wonder, was one of those individuals benefiting from a free rider effect. And when a disaster occurs, well, where was the actual breakdown? And look, I believe these things actually matter. So how would you overcome the all-care-no-responsibility culture that joint accountabilities tend to create? The literature on job sharing indicates that it took off pretty well in the public sector. Government organisations embraced it. But the private sector was, to quote a phrase, slow to follow. And this is probably a good indication of a lack of belief in the efficacy of job sharing as a solution to a business problem. These days, we've got a much better understanding of the need for personal flexibility. So I suspect there are going to be less requirements for a full-time role to be split between multiple individuals in the future. The concept of job sharing is probably being crowded out by more flexible arrangements that are widely available. I think it's now more likely that a set of objectives and accountabilities will simply be defined into separate roles. We've seen that with job sharing, you have two people sharing one full-time role, so at least the accountability is reasonably clear to the role, despite the other issues. But having two full-time people splitting the same role is even more problematic. Enter the co-CEO. Now, I first came across this years ago as I was a chief information officer, and the company I worked for at the time was a customer of software giant SAP. Now, at the time, SAP was the largest global supplier of business management software. In 2010, I met with Jim Hagerman-Snaber, one of the newly appointed co-CEOs of SAP, 
Jim was based in Europe, and the other half of the CEO Act, Bill McDermott, was based in the USA. Jim was an internal appointment and Bill was external. As Jim described it to me, his accountabilities were focused on the product itself and the future of the technology roadmap, while McDermott's role was focused on the customer. They both had global accountabilities for the markets and the 50,000-odd people who worked for SAP at the time. This arrangement lasted for about three years before Jim announced that he would step down from the co-CEO role. Look, I tend to get awfully curious about this stuff. And even though the real story rarely emerges in public, I went looking for some earlier articles in the hope that I'd see some indication that the arrangement wasn't all champagne and roses from the get-go. Interestingly, I found a brief Bloomberg interview on YouTube, which was conducted in April 2011 with McDermott and Hagerman Snarber. The co-CEO structure had been in place for just over a year at this point. So I looked for signs that might portend what was to come. Well, after watching the interview, I noticed a few things. From the amount of talking time that each received, which was not a huge difference, but probably 60-40 in favour of McDermott, to the body language and overall demeanour of the two CEOs, it was pretty obvious to me that McDermott was the dominant force in the shared CEO office. He even said at one point early on in the interview, oh, Jim's got a great story about Japan that he must tell you. (laughs) And the Oscar for Best Actor in a Supporting Role goes too. (laughs) So, look, no surprise that a couple of years later, Jim vacated the role to make Bill McDermott the sole CEO. Now, I don't want to say that a hugely successful global organisation like SAP could possibly be slow learners, but when McDermott retired in 2019, SAP again appointed co-CEOs. Jen Morgan and Christian Klein. Morgan and Klein were described respectively as a sales superstar and an internal Wunderkind. Well, of course, it is a German company. But this particular tilt at co-CEO-dom lasted barely six months. Fortunately, this time, SAP could at least point to the pandemic as the catalyst for backtracking on the co-CEO model. According to the SAP chairman, going back to a single CEO was to ensure strong, unambiguous steering of the company. Amen. More recently, we've seen Brett Taylor, who's also the former chair of Twitter, leave his role as co-CEO at Salesforce, another global software giant. Salesforce was founded in 1999 by Mark Benioff and three others. Two years later, in 2001, Benioff was named CEO and chairman. Just a little aside here, I don't particularly like the combined chair-CEO role either, just from a governance perspective. Whereas it might reduce friction in the decision-making process, I think it gives one individual way too much influence over proceedings. The whole point of the board is to oversee strategy and risk while providing some governance. If the CEO also controls the board, the likelihood of one person doing as he or she pleases without an appropriate level of oversight and control increases dramatically. But of course, I digress again. (laughs) Taylor came to Salesforce as part of its acquisition of Quip in 2016. And initially, Taylor was made Chief Operating Officer. Later, he was promoted to the role of co-CEO. Now, this looks like it was probably an attempted succession plan. Taylor was being groomed as Benioff's successor. But apparently, Mark Benioff couldn't let go. Now, as far as you can believe the media reports, Taylor supposedly oversaw 10 top executives running five key areas, finance, operations, 
engineering, staffing, and marketing. This is the classic COO role with a few notable add-ons. Now, insiders say that the two CEOs were stepping on each other's toes, not staying in their lanes. Apparently, Taylor was focused largely on profitability and Benioff more on growth. The other problem, of course, was that deep divisions started to emerge in the executive team based on their reporting lines. This wasn't Benioff's first bite of the cherry either. He had Keith Block as co-CEO in 2018, and that arrangement only lasted 18 months. The co-CEO structure isn't the only way to completely confuse accountabilities at the top of an organisation either. Some companies have a separate president and CEO, and of course it's never obvious to anyone who does what. Others have an executive chairman and a CEO. The executive part of that title indicates a management accountability. And of course, I've seen many executive directors stumble all over a managing director's accountabilities. Let's face it, the boards that put these arrangements in place aren't stupid. Perhaps they want to get the benefit of two people with exceptional and complementary skill sets. Perhaps they want to keep two really good people when one might otherwise leave. Perhaps they're looking for a soft landing on their succession plans. But whatever their intent, it seems to be incredibly hard to make it work in practical terms. It's not the boxes on a structure chart that make the most difference. It's the white space in between the boxes that does. As you can see, the big problem with job sharing, co-CEOs and other similar structures is that accountabilities aren't crystal clear. Who's accountable for specific decisions and results in a world where overlaps are part and parcel of modern org structures? Even if you separate the roles by having different reporting relationships that seem to clearly delineate the accountabilities, human nature is to form strong bonds and identity around your proximate peers and immediate team. It can turn pretty quickly into an us or them, and the power struggle begins. Let's face it, most of us are never going to have to decide whether or not to establish a co-CEO relationship, but we all need to clearly identify who's doing what in our team, regardless of its size or the number of levels. So let me give you my three-step process for how to think more clearly about structure when you find yourself in the position of having to define it. The first step is to make sure you get the order right. Strategy first, then structure, then people. We have a tendency to think mostly about the people and how accountabilities can best be divided between them. And yes, there's definitely a need for the informal tailoring of roles based on who's occupying them but you need to think through the issues in the right way. First, what are you trying to achieve? What's your strategy? Next, what structure do you need to put in place in order to deliver that strategy? What roles and accountabilities need to be created to execute effectively? And finally, after you've done that, who can I put in those roles who's going to perform them brilliantly? The second step of the three-step process is to make sure there is one and only one name next to every major deliverable. Splitting an accountability between more than one person is a slippery slope, and it's often done in the name of collaboration. Oh, Greg and Sally are both accountable for that deliverable. They're collaborating. Pig's ass. That's how overlaps and gaps develop. One and only one name. One head to pat, one ass to kick, they both belong to the same person. Then, you encourage that person to collaborate with others. But if you try to do it the other way around, it simply doesn't work. Starting with an environment of well-meaning collaboration, 
and then trying to superimpose strong accountability over the top of that is an order of magnitude harder than starting with single-point accountability and then fostering collaboration. The third and final step is to remain doggedly focused on outcomes. In the second law of thermodynamics, entropy tells us that things tend to naturally seek a state of disorder. And if you do nothing different in the way you lead, people will tend to fall back to the loose indiscipline of shared accountability. So when you're trying to gauge progress and performance, you have to look at delivered value, not activity. You've heard me talk about this ad nauseum. When it comes to your team structure, if you focus on activity, you won't even be able to see the ill effects of the shared accountabilities, let alone resolve the gaps and overlaps. The debilitating inefficiencies are going to remain hidden under the careful protection of your lovely, all-care-no-responsibility people. And even really good people will happily hide behind vague and nebulous accountabilities in order to avoid the harsh gaze of performance scrutiny. To wrap this up, even in situations where it might seem like a good idea to share a role, I would strongly advise you to rethink it. It's a lesson that the tech sector seems to be relearning frequently. It seems a bit too much like Groundhog Day there. You may think that it's a great idea to get two highly skilled and experienced people to contribute to the outcomes. Two heads are better than one, right? But that's simply not true. The few pros are massively outweighed by the many cons. So get the structure right first and make sure that you have a single point of accountability for every major deliverable. Every decision and all resourcing has to gravitate to that single point so that the individual is empowered to deliver. This is the foundation of execution excellence. So look, don't mess with it. This isn't easy, of course, otherwise, well, everyone would be doing it. But if you can manage to get this right, then you can take the next step, which is making sure that you don't have any passengers on your team. Once we head into this territory, it takes real commitment as a leader. But it's something you're more than capable of if you truly believe how great the benefits are for everyone involved. All right, so that brings us to the end of episode 230. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please share this episode with a friend or colleague who you know is going to benefit from understanding the power of single-point accountability. I look forward to next week's episode, Talent Management, Planning for the Future. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader. <laughs>